All right. Hey, let's pray. Lord, thank you for this morning. Uh, Thank you for giving us voices uh, to cry out to you, for creating us in a way that we uh, could immediately respond uh, and give thanks. Lord, we just ask that you would give us a supernatural gift of hearing today, that we would hear your voice. Amen. Hey, my name's Trey. I go here just like you. Um, Last time I came up here, I was like late on my cue. I think I was a little early this time. It's pretty good. Uh, When I was a little kid, I went to a church that split in half. Uh, I don't know why. I I was a child. But that meant that the children's choir split in half. And, by the way, this story has nothing to do with anything. It's just funny. But um, the only kids that were left in the children's choir, which everyone hated being in, but you, like, kind of had to be, were, were me, my twin brother, and this kid named Aaron. And Aaron was a terrible singer. So my brother and I had to sing really, really loud to try and cover up how bad Aaron sounded. That's the story. There's nothing else that has to do with it. it just, I just thought of it when I came up here. Um, but... Uh, yeah. So anyways, we've been going through the book of James this summer, and it's my favorite book of the Bible. Uh, it was the first book of the Bible that I read when I first started following Jesus, like, legitimately, uh, and, like, reading the Bible, like, actually reading it. Uh, and it is a book of transformation. So keep that in mind as we talk today, that this is a book of transformation. And if you think about transformation, it's not always, like, caterpillar, chrysalis, butterfly. It sometimes is a lot more painful than that. I don't know if caterpillars are going through excruciating pain when they're turning into butterflies. Maybe they are, but um, transformation can be really tough. And so James speaks with some pretty tough language. Um, he, he seems to point fingers a lot. Uh, and I think it's important to keep in mind that as we look at what James is saying, that um, it's because he deeply cares for these people. The, the people that we speak harshly to Um, are often the people that we love the most. And so we have to understand that James is speaking out of love when he does this. So um, what we're going to do today is we're going to read a large amount of Scripture. We're going to read all, almost all, of James 4. Uh, And the reason that we're going to do that is because later in future sermons, then we'll go back and kind of pick out certain things. But I wanted to give you kind of an overarching view of all of this chapter because... um, it, that's how you read books. <laughs> like, it just makes sense to kind of read the whole thing and then go back and look at it later. But um, there's sort of this overarching thing that if we stop like right in the, at the beginning, it seems like really bad. Um, but he, he, he brings it around. But first, I'd like to tell you a story. Um, I, my entire life, have sort of prided myself on attempting to be different than other people. Um, I constantly, I don't know, aimed to not be like everyone else. If everybody was, you know, everybody liked the red Power Ranger and I liked the blue one and no one likes the blue Power Ranger. So that's just a really a good example you can all understand. Um, but there was one point in my life and I think that there's, there, there's at least one point in everyone's life where they try to fit in as much as possible and that's middle school. Uh, and in middle school, when I was in middle school, which was like 2004, uh, the cool thing to do was to have uh, you, everyone had, like, had to look like they played basketball for some reason. So I begged my mom to buy me basketball. She was like real Iversons, like white, all white Iversons. She made me pay the extra $10 at 
at like the discount store so that I didn't get the all black ones. Uh, I had all white Iversons. You wore basketball shorts, like loose fitting basketball shorts because that was like the beginning of the hip hop culture that like everyone like wore their pants down to like here. And so you wore basketball shorts, but you sagged them so that everybody could see your boxers. And then you wore like some kind of graphic t-shirt that let, like, let people know you were kind of funny. Uh, a fitted hat, it had to be fitted. You couldn't have, like snapbacks were not cool then. And then I wore a, a chain, which was really my baptism necklace. <laughs> a chain and a, an analog watch, like, like a, one that looked like it was expensive. Mine was from Walmart, and I didn't know how to read it. Um, but at that point in time, I had to look cool. It was the only time in my life I can think of where, like, I was consumed by the fact that, like, I had to look cool. And uh, I was at youth group one night, and we were, like, all sitting around, and there's, like, super uncomfortable couches. And I was sitting next to Caitlin Hassler, uh, who was the girl that I had a crush on, and she was a year older than me and went to a different school. So she had lots of mysteriousness about her. And I was sitting next to her, and I was wearing my really cool outfit, uh, I only had like one. And so um, the problem with wearing athletic shorts that are baggy and boxer shorts is that you very quickly just get a terrible wedgie, like really, really bad. Um, and I kind of kind of been like working on that, you know, middle school me, you're like fidgeting around a lot. And I was like answering a question or something and I stood up and I was like, pick me, pick me. And I reminded you, I'm sitting right next to Caitlin Hassler. So her face is like here. And I just stood up and Wesley Mowbray, my best friend, pulled my pants down. <laughs> Which would be terrifying in and itself. But I had such a horrible wedgie that it looked like I was wearing a thong. And it was right in her face. And so I just, I did the only thing I knew to do is I just ran, I just started running and I ran out of the room and I just ran, there was like a gymnasium and I ran and I just kept running. And it was the worst day of my life. Uh, you'd think that my youth leader, like the adult in the room would try and like make this better somehow by like being like, dude, it's cool, like whatever. When I came back in the room, I kid you not, he said, you wearing a thong? Oh, thanks, I thought everybody forgot about that. That would have been really cool if you just left that alone. There's a time in all of our lives, um, whether we think that we do or not, that we want to be like everyone else. And it's actually a recurring theme that happens throughout Scripture, uh, even back to when God is establishing this kingdom. He has these, this, these people that he makes his own, and they constantly cry out, we want to be like everybody else. Um, the Israelites wanted a king, just like everybody else. They didn't want God as their king. They wanted a real king. Um, and, and that kind of theme has continued throughout Scripture. And so as we look today, we look at James, the brother of Jesus, um, kind of pointing fingers at a group of people that has decided that they want to be like everyone else, that they want to be like the world. So we're going to uh, read James 4. This is out of the NLT, the New Living Translation. I like this a lot. I think it's a very um, kind of picturesque version of the Bible. You should check it out. Um, if you ever like switching it up sometimes. But it says this. It says, what is causing quarrels and fights among you? Don't they come from the evil desires at war within you? You want what you do not have, so you scheme and kill to get it. You're jealous of what others have, but you can't get it, so you fight and wage war to take it away from them. Yet you don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. 
And even when you ask, you don't get it because your motives are all wrong. You want only what will give you pleasure. I'm going to keep reading a lot of this. Try to follow along the best that you can. We're going to go back through this and kind of I'll give you my like Cliff Notes version here in a second. Because then he really goes in on them. He says, you adulterers. Don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? I say it again, just in case you didn't hear me the first time when I called you adulterers. If you want to be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. Do, do you not think the scriptures have no meaning? He's like, aren't you reading this? They say that God is passionate, that the spirit he has placed within us should be faithful to him. And he gives grace great, generously. As the scriptures say, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So humble yourselves before God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come close to God and God will come close to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts for your loyalty is divided between God and the world. That's that idea that we, that we want to be like everyone else. Let there be tears for what you have done. Let there be sorrow and deep grief. Let there be sadness instead of laughter and gloom instead of joy. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up in honor. And then this last little tidbit is kind of changes tone a little bit. And he says, don't speak evil against each other, dear brothers and sisters. If you criticize and judge each other, then you are criticizing and judging God's law. But your job is to obey the law, not to judge whether it applies to you. God alone, who gave the law, is the judge. He alone has the power to save or destroy. So what right do you have to judge your neighbor? Now, I realize that was a lot, um, but this is a letter this is a letter written to a lot of people. It was meant to kind of circulate and be passed around. Uh, so that if, if today's, you know, uh, version of this would be a mass email, but you would actually read it. Um, and when I read big pieces of scripture, it really helps me to go back and put it into my own words. Um, we do this with high school students all the time. When we're reading the Bible, we, we go in and we, we read, and then we step aside, and we say, okay, like, what's really happening here? Because these people don't talk like we talk. This was written a long time ago, and then translated, and then translated, and then translated. Uh, and so we need to go in and actually pull apart what's happening here to understand. So I'm not saying, like, this is the Trey Foster version of the Bible here, but this is the Trey Foster version of the Bible. Uh, this first part, where he says, what is causing quarrels and fights among you? He's saying, what's, what is, what's making all these problems in your life? And then he says, don't they come from your evil desires at war within you? You want what you don't have, so you scheme and you kill to get it. Now, that sounds extreme. I don't know if he's actually writing to people that are killing people, but I think we can understand his language here, right? Where he's like, hey, you are not content with what you have. You're not okay with what you have, and so you've decided that what other people have should be yours. Now, this is what Josh talked about uh, last week or two weeks ago. I can't remember, but um, it's this, this envy that kind of stirs things up in us. And we might think, that's not me. I don't have that problem. I'm not in middle school anymore. And we'll get there because we actually do have this problem. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, we are not content, so we scheme. You scheme because you only want what makes you happy. Now... This, um, I'm reading Ecclesiastes right now. If you've never read Ecclesiastes, or Ecclesiastes, as I like to call it. Um, Ecclesiastes is, and the reason I call it that, is because it's a very, uh, it's a very interesting book of the Bible, 
where the author over and over says that things are meaningless, or um, sort of the original translation of that is that like the everything, literally everything is what he says, is a vapor, that it's chasing the wind, that you attempt to grasp it and it's like smoke that's gone. Um, and this is kind of that same concept, right? That like we have, there's so many things that we want, there's things that we are not content with that, that we don't have and we, we're constantly grasping um, but what we read in Ecclesiastes is that it's just vapor. Um, so it continues. Uh, he points out and says, you adulterers, don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? Um, this is a weird concept. Uh, we know what the word adulterer means, right? It means that you are, have, have separated yourself from and eff- effectively cheated on someone, right? That you have been unfaithful. And it's in the context of marriage which is a weird thing, but we also, throughout Scripture, get to see that we as the church are, you know, this, the bride that, that God has sent his son to marry, to, to, you know, kind of bring together with. And so, um, when James points his finger and says, you adulterers, that language kind of hits home because it means that we have not only just, like, wandered from God, but actively chosen something else. And in this case, it's a whole world of different things. It's wanting to be like the world. So he goes on to explain more. Uh, you chose normalcy and happiness over the king. Which, again, it sounds harsh, but like the reality is, is we do this all the time. Our culture tells us that being happy is the most important thing in your life. That's what marketing is. Every commercial you've ever seen is pulling at this idea that you deserve to be happy and have what you want. And what James is saying is that's actually like not really what's supposed to be happening here. You are meant to be with God, and that's what he starts talking about next. He says, you know, haven't you read this? Uh, do, do you think that the scriptures are meaningless, that they have no meaning? They say that God is passionate. And this is where he brings it back, so that's not all just like finger-pointing. They say that God is passionate, that, that the spirit he's placed within us should be faithful to him, and he gives grace generously. So I kind of took that to mean, like, we're meant to be with God. Like, this, it's not like God's just mad for no reason. Growing up in the church, I heard a lot of rules. I heard a lot of, like, don't do this, don't do this, only do this. You can't do this on Sundays, but you can do it any other time. You know, like, the, and I didn't really have a whole lot of why. Like, why does God care so much? Um, and then when I got to high school, I had a really great youth leader who was really, really good at kind of pulling back and saying, hey, here's the why, right? Like your parents create rules because they love you. You're not supposed to touch the stove because it'll burn you. You're not supposed to be out past midnight because nothing good ever happens after midnight, right? Um, and so James is pointing back towards God and saying, like, this isn't for nothing. This isn't so that you just have to color inside the lines and be boring. It's because God loves you, and he gives grace generously. So it's not like, oh, you're in trouble now. God's mad. You're an adulterer. Uh, that's not what we see. In fact, any time that we really see uh, an adulterer in Scripture, there's, I'd say, 99% of the time, um, there is redemption in that story, and there's something, there's grace upon grace upon grace. And so he adds that grace is available here. We're meant to be with God, and he wants us close to him. That's something that, growing up, I had a hard time figuring out, 
right? Like I thought God was always mad. I thought there was this scale. And then if I just needed to load up one end of the scale, I'd be fine. Um, but that's not how grace works. Grace is never ending. It just keeps going, keeps going. And so finally, um, I guess this isn't the last one, but this kind of last part of that initial one through uh, ten is that he calls us to humble ourselves. This is something that we are not good at. I especially am terrible at this. I am not a humble person. My grandfather, every time I would see him, would always tell me the exact same thing. He would shake my hand and say, you're the best. And I would say, I know. <laughs> That's not a joke. And then he'd be like, ha, 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 he's humble too. And I'd say, I know. Um, we have a hard time being humble because we have a hard time looking outside of ourselves. We love ourselves. We want everything good for ourselves. We want to be happy. But James calls us to humble ourselves as if it's the answer here. That all of these problems, all these things that have been piling up, the, our adulterous ways are actually rooted in our inability to be humble, which is tough. Because if we truly humble ourselves, things get real messy. Insert this text where things get really messy and weird. He says, um, purify your hearts and let there be sorrow and deep grief. Let there be sadness instead of laughter and gloom instead of joy. You know, like I think if you told this to the typical American, they would say, yeah, that's probably what all of the Bible looks like. It's like this idea of just like your life should be terrible and like bury yourself and live the life of a martyr. Um, but then it, he follows this with, and he will lift you up in honor. Uh, and I just kind of, I kind of shortened that up and just says, humble yourself, lay on your face before the Lord. Which we're going to talk about that here in a second. Dump out all of your junk, your mistakes, your desires to run away. Strip yourself bare. Don't drop microphones. God is waiting for this. This is actually something that God desires, that he wants to be near us, but... He wants us to apologize. He wants us to come back and say, I've done wrong. Now, uh, if you've been coming to Restoration for a while, we do corporate confession. And if you grew up in um, a couple of different, you know, kind of faith backgrounds, you, you probably have heard of confession, this idea of, like, telling God that we're wrong and, we're, and we've done the things that we weren't supposed to. Um, <clears throat> this is not something you should do in public, right? Like, this is not the kind of thing that you, like, walk up, in front of like a lot of people and like this is ugly and laying on your face before God this is the kind of thing you do in a closet in your house um, but it has a purpose and it's to strip ourselves bare of ourselves and say I don't do this right by myself I don't I don't do this correctly because I want to be like everyone else and God says when you want to be like everyone else you end up looking like a seventh grader with his pants around his ankles and his butt in a girl's face, which is not what you want. Um, oh, that's got all weird here. So after we break this down, after, oh, there's actually one more. I lied. Um, and then this part actually, uh, in some uh, versions of the Bible, some translations of the Bible, this actually is kind of like cut off with a little, like, header. Those headers aren't there in real life, by the way. You should ignore them every time you're reading the Bible. Um, but in the NLT, it's not, which is kind of nice. 
But he goes on and he adds on this little like extra thing because he knows how humans work. He knows what our initial response, because as we're all squirming in our seats here and we're like, oh, he's telling me that I did something wrong. Then we initially, the very first thing we want to do is be like, but that guy's worse. And we want to start pointing fingers. And so James immediately like calls us on that and says, don't do it. Don't speak evil against each other. Don't criticize or judge. It's not your job. Your job is to obey. Um, don't even think about pointing fingers at other people. This is about you. Like I said, this is a book of transformation. Like if you were in a place in your life where you were like, I want to be different. I want to be better. I want to be more like Jesus. That's what James is getting at here. So you can't read this book and, and leave. You can't just, it, it will be a terrible story because this book requires action. It requires actually doing these things. Um, so when you go home to your mom after this, and she's like, what did you learn today? You can't really say anything until you go and do it. Otherwise, you're just like, I learned like a, a, a couple steps in a process. I learned that I'm bad. I don't know. Like, it would be a, wouldn't be fun. Your mom would be like, I'm not sending you there anymore. Um, so this requires action, which I love to talk about because I think the Bible is extremely practical. I think growing up, I thought it was dusty and it was old and it had all these weird things in it that had nothing to do with me because it was written so long ago by so many different people, but it does require action. I don't even remember what I put on this next slide. Contentment. Um, it all comes down to this, I, I, this is not in here, but it's kind of this phrase that I came up with is holy contentment. This idea that like we need to be okay, like actually okay, not like the, like put in our headphones and like drown out the world okay, but we need to be content with what the Lord has given us. If we look, um, you know, kind of back at the beginning of this, you don't need to pull it up, but uh, he talks about how we are constantly grasping at what other people have, we want what the world has, and if we look back through all of scripture, we constantly see that God's like, no, 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 I gave you what you need. It might not be fun. It might not look like it needs to look, but it's actually precisely what you need. I have given you medicine, and it might taste terrible, but it will heal you. It will make your sickness go away so that you don't have to be sick like everyone else. Uh, in 2 Corinthians, this idea of sort of this contentment comes up where Paul, right, this guy who um, really, really ran after Jesus for like, a couple of years until the point that they killed him for it. Like, he went all out. He had basically done such a good job <laughs> that God decided to, like, humble him a little bit, right? Because he was just being so good at following Jesus and, and, and traveling and telling people about God and all this stuff. And so this isn't a letter that he wrote. He says, so to keep me from becoming proud right? Because this is, again, we're going to get back to being humble. To keep me from becoming proud, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger from Satan to torment me and keep me from becoming proud. Uh, we don't know what this is. It's some kind of ailment that, some, or sickness, or like rash, or something. Some people have some ideas of what it might have been, but the reality is, is that Paul, because he was cruising along so steadily, in order to keep him humble, God gave him some kind of sickness. And Paul, of course, is like, and it's the best. 
He says, three different times I begged the Lord to take it away, so he didn't really love it. And each time he said, my grace is all you need. That's holy contentment. That the only thing, the only thing that you could ever, 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 ever need is grace. My power works best in weakness. So I'm going to make you weak. So now I am glad to boast about my weakness so that the power of Christ can work through me. That's why I take my pleasure in my weakness. And in the insults, the hardships, the persecutions and troubles that I suffer for Christ, for I am weak, then I am strong. Could you imagine actually feeling this way about terrible things that happened to you? Like if you got super sick, like I could imagine pretending to feel this way, right? Like I've seen enough movies that I feel like I could like step up and be like, I'm fine. I can't imagine actually in a place of severe weakness, in a place where I'd be begging God to take this thorn from me, to be like, I love this. I am so glad that God has humbled me so that I can truly have nothing but him. I don't know if you've ever been in a place like that in your life where you've literally had the rug pulled out from under you and the only thing you've had left is God. It's only happened to me once in my life, and that is a story for another time, but I am so thankful for that time. It was the worst year of my life and the best year of my life combined because I had nothing and God worked through that and changed my life drastically. I would not be the human being that I am today without that. Um, holy contentment. We have to be content with only what God gives us, which also means we should probably pay attention to the things God has given us. Like we have so much stuff and not just like material possessions, but like we have so much stuff it's so easy to just, like, you can live your life without God. In the, back then, like, it was probably a little bit harder, you know? Like, in other countries, it's probably a little bit harder, but we can live our lives pretty well without God. You obviously can see this around you. Uh, we have to be content with what we have, and we have to know what God's given us, and that's grace. So here's sort of the step-by-step of what, if you're going to actually apply this, which is tough, like, the challenge to apply this scripture to your life is basically asking you to rip your own heart out, throw it on the floor, and beg God to fix it. Uh, but it starts with this. It starts with um, when you mess up, you have to humble ourselves, which basically means we just have to constantly be humbling ourselves. Uh, again, I, I love talking about who I was in high school because it's such an, an easy time to look back on and, and to kind of... You know, you can, you can say, like, I'm different now. But I remember in that time, I would always, you know, the, the sin in my life was so obvious. It was so easy to just be like, that was bad. Like, I got grounded for it. So that was obviously bad. But as you become an adult and, like, a relatively wise person, it becomes a lot sneakier. You know, you're not sneaking out of your house and, you know, like, going and hanging out with your friends in the middle of the night. You can do that whenever you want now. It's just called hanging out too late. Like, that's just a normal thing. Uh, it's, not, it's not as nefarious feeling, but, it, but there are still points in our lives where we, are, where we don't look like God. I think that's the best way that I can phrase it. It's not like, it's not often this, you know, this big disobedient thing where you're like, yeehaw, like, take that, God. That's not how we live our lives that often. Maybe you do, and then this will be easy for you. Um, but it's usually just more like, I gave my wife just the worst look today, and I hope that she really understood what I meant. You know, like, that's where I didn't look like God. Um, and so the best way to handle this is to, one, get alone, get by yourself, because in theory, this could get very ugly, um, and just lay before the Lord 
and just start dumping it out. This is me. This is who I've been. This is everything that I have been without God. Um, and I, I don't know about you. I've never done this in my life. Never. I have never walked before another human being, got down on my, my knees and bowed to someone. I think it would be very strange. And that's what God asks us to do here. And in like a religious sense, we're like, no, that's totally normal. It's not. It is one of the most humble, humiliating things that you can do is to get before God, lay on your face and be like, hey, you are so much better than me at this and I need you. So get alone and don't be afraid to just throw it all out there. Um, then part of this is, is commit to change. Uh, the word, uh, he doesn't actually use it in here, but um, repentance is not something that like, we're very comfortable with in our culture because that is what all the crazy people on uh, corners with big signs that like, hate people have, like repent or burn. Um, but repentance is actually a really beautiful thing. The idea, uh, it, it means to turn around, to go in the opposite direction. We have to be in a place when we are, you know, sitting before the Lord that we can actually say, I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm going to actually try not to do that anymore. And I'm going to turn around and repent and, t and commit to being different. Because again, this is about transformation. Um, if you're okay with where you are right now, if you feel good about that, like this, this, just don't do it, I guess. It'd be really weird. Um, and then finally, um, just worry about yourself. It's so easy to start pointing fingers when we get uncomfortable. You start to get that, like, weird, uncomfortable feeling that, you know, yeah, I'm just, but I'm not that bad. There's so many terrible people around me. We know. God knows. He knows that the world is filled with people that do horrible things atrocious things. Our news is filled with people that do horrible, horrible things. But you have no control over them. None. You can't do these things for them. You can't dump out their heart. You can't commit to their change. You just have to worry about yourself. Those people are a different topic for a different time, and James is not talking about them. But we have to look inward. And stop looking outward. It's so easy for us to just turn around and point fingers and be like, but that guy and this guy, and he gets away with it. And it's just not, there's a million examples there that aren't worth chasing down at all. Um, to wrap this up, I don't think I have another slide after that, right? Yes, I remembered. Um, to wrap this up, and I know this has been a little long, I'm sorry. James is a book of transformation. God desires for us to be transformed. Not because we are, you know, well, we have this idea. It is, it is because we are wicked. Um, we have this idea in our culture, uh, and it's really hard to talk about this um, because we believe this so deeply that, like, there's nothing wrong with me. I don't need to change. Like, God loves me the way that I am, and that is 110% true. Like, so true that you could never grasp how true that is, that God loves you no matter what. But he also desires you for you to be close. And right now, we kind of stink. And there's different, you know, 
levels of that. And that doesn't matter because, again, we're not pointing fingers here. But God desires us to be drawn in. And part of that drawing in process involves transformation in being like him. Because when we come close to someone, we become more like them. And that is his desire for us. It is born in love. It is not born out of the fact that you're so nasty that God can't stand to be around you, so you better change or else he won't hang out with you. It's quite the opposite. It's just that your dad wants you to take a bath so that you can sit closer while you're watching a movie. God desires us to be transformed, to look more like him. And the crazy thing, the coolest part of this is that there's actually purpose in that. It's not just a self-help book. It's not like you will be better, yay for you. It's so that other people around you that have no concept of the grace and the love that Jesus has for you can look at you and say, oh my gosh, there's something quite different about you. There must be, there must be something to this living God that you say lives within you. Let's pray. Lord, I just ask um, that you would lead us to a place of transformation, that you would take us to uh, a place in our lives, in our homes, in, in, this, in this day um, that would draw us closer to you, that we would leave things behind that we've been holding on to for a very long time, that we would realize the places in our lives where we just don't really look like you, even though they may look kind of good. Lord, we corporately ask that you would just forgive us, that you would continue to extend the never-ending grace for us that you have, Lord, that you would show us your love and your compassion for your people today. Amen.